0: So our scripture reading this morning picks up just a little bit after the children's sermon. Jonah did, in fact, end up in Nineveh, and he did prophesy to that city that they were soon to be overturned. And the people, and not just the people, even the animals listened, and they repented to such a degree that they were not struck down. So this is where our scripture begins this morning, in Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, "Oh Lord, is this not what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be so angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So that Jonah was very happy about the bush, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked, again, that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals. May God add a blessing to the reading and the hearing and the understanding of God's holy word. No one behaves better than a child whose sibling is in deep trouble. No one. There are a few cases of extreme loyalty which I love to see. The if you go down, I'm going down with you folks, sometimes called your ride or die, the ones even willing to take the fall for your mistakes, to cover you at all costs, they are invaluable. I am blessed with one such sibling in my sister Hillary who has a birthday today. I love her birthday because I wasn't yet two when she was born. So on her birthday and for only two months, we are just one year apart. So I texted her last night, can't wait for tomorrow when we will be 25 and 26. No matter what we got up to, I could always count on her to have my back. But generally, for most siblings most of the time, seeing your sibling mess up royally gives you the chance to shine, to really shine, to be the good one. Have you heard parents sometimes describe the differences between their first and second-born? Oh, this one child is such an angel, I don't even need to tell them what to do, they just do their homework, they pick up their room, I can talk to them about deep intellectual things, they are wonderful, but oh my gosh, they're sibling, they are making me tear my hair out, I'm at my wit's end, they need to be punished and grounded every other weekend. Have you heard folks like that? For some families, there is flexibility in the roles. One might be the good one this week and one will be good the next week. But if you want to really see a dramatic turnaround in someone's behavior, look at a family with entrenched roles and see what happens when the perpetual golden child falls from grace and watch the transformation that comes upon that one who's called the basket case. They will suddenly hold their head high, brush off their broken halo. They will even offer to find their parent a stopwatch to time that punishment. But then, if you want to really crush that person, let them think it is about to be their turn to shine and take it all away. The parents have granted that magical get-out-of-jail-free card. No punishments today. The parents are generous with their forgiveness on the day that that sibling was going to get it. How crushing, how crushing for the one who was ready for their turn to be the golden child. Imagine their dismay when that parent is like God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is Jonah's problem with God. God, how could you be so slow to anger, so abounding in steadfast love? This is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh. One of the most troubling questions for people of faith is, why do bad things happen to good people? But our trouble today is how we can cope when good things happen to bad people, or people we consider undeserving people, or what happens when bad things don't happen to bad people. Jonah is listed with the other minor prophets in the scriptures, but this book of the Bible only has one little sentence in it that could be considered prophecy when he goes to Nineveh and says, you're going to get it. You're going to be overturned. Compare that with the prophet Isaiah, who has 66 long chapters of beautiful poetry and prose and rhetoric, trying to convince people to turn around, to give their hearts to God, to behave well. Instead, Jonah is less like prophecy and more like a funny fable about a bad prophet. Whether or not you find it funny or we should find it funny can be debated, but I think it's hilarious and it is terrific satire that at the very least surprises us. Now, we're all familiar with the children's version of Jonah and the Big Fish, but we are so less familiar with this section, and I think it's too bad. As the Bible Project, which is a wonderful resource which I recommend to you if you want to do some Bible study on your own online, the Bible Project calls this a mirror held up to us to help us examine some of our less attractive spiritual qualities. So this ridiculous prophet has a comical and dramatic flair for claiming multiple times to have a death wish and a burning desire to essentially eat popcorn while his enemies get smote by God. Did I use that tense accurately? So when he finally goes to Nineveh, he does the bare minimum. He simply announces the sad fact God will overturn the city, and then the dramatic irony is that the city is, in fact, overturned with a change of heart. They are truly transformed. And this infuriates him. He just couldn't wait to see hellfire and brimstone rain down all over Nineveh. Now, Nineveh is modern-day Mosul in northern Iraq. It is about 8,000 years old as a city. It is mentioned as one of the four most important cities in Genesis, and was once the largest city in the world, taking three days to walk across. It was rich and thriving. It was alongside a beautiful river. Some believe that it was the site of one of the lost seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It was for a time the capital city of the empire of Assyria and it boasted the grandest temple to the goddess of heaven. Jonah hates Nineveh. He hates this grand and glorious city. He was so ready to be God's best buddy holding that stopwatch and watching Nineveh go up in flames. But if it wasn't going to happen, if God was going to be slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, which he had a good suspicion was going to happen, he wanted no part of that story. So Jonah's temper tantrum is supposed to be funny, but is also supposed to reflect for us some of our more immature spiritual tendencies so that hopefully we might grow in our ability to be compassionate. And our gospel passage this morning functions in much the same way. Let's listen again for the word of God from the gospel according to Matthew in the 20th chapter. Jesus tells his friends this story. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received the usual daily wage. Now, when the first came, they thought they would receive more. But each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last, the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Friends, this also holds up a mirror for us, inviting us to challenge our less mature spiritual instincts when sometimes we feel like this. Might we feel like Jonah? Or might we feel like these ones who worked hard all day? Might we be envious because we think God is generous with people who might not deserve it. We struggle to make sense of God's vision for how things could be. It doesn't square with the way we like things to be, with how we have set things up. No, we have systems and rules and regulations, traditions, habits, patterns, assumptions. They may have made a mess for many people. But we have a hard time seeing beyond them, particularly for those of us for whom the system seems to be working just fine. Debts are not canceled. People get what is their due. Then we are confronted with what Jesus is actually asking us to envision when we picture the kingdom of God. And we are shocked, maybe even offended. Are we envious that God would be so generous? Let's look closer and unpack what is going on in this parable. Why at five o'clock might some still be standing around when that landowner comes and asks, Why are you standing here all day? And they say, Because no one has hired us. What else might be going on? Do they feel like those children at recess who will never be picked for that team What is it going on in their lives that maybe they weren't able to make it to the market by 9 a.m., and even if they had, they would have been overlooked, not hired for work. Did they look weak or unwell? Did they have a hardship in their lives? Did they have a sick child or responsibilities for elderly parents? Something that might stir our compassion, something that might help us be less likely to judge them, or, might we be more likely to assume bad things about them? Might we be willing to wonder, well, did they just come here illegally over the border? Couldn't they have come the legal way as my ancestors did? Are they on food stamps? Look how unwilling they are to work. Did they maybe have too many children who they can't take care of? Oh, did they have too much student loan debt? Can they not afford their apartment on minimum wage? Are they maybe struggling with some type of addiction? Did they oversleep because they were hungover? Are they the sort of person who might, after night after night of no sleep, forget their baby in a hot car or not arrange childcare for them? Are they so irresponsible that they missed the bus? Were they so irresponsible that they forgot to pick up their medication or to budget correctly so that they could be more responsible in this world? Is their life unmanageable in some way that is their fault? And doesn't the world want to see them get what we think is their due? This scripture, both of these scriptures, hold up a mirror to show us a bleak side of human nature that hopefully we wouldn't want to admit to, and hopefully we are working on, if we have this kind of spiritual childness where we want to see others get what we think is their due, our willingness to be like an unloving sibling embroiled in a silly rivalry and willing to have a tantrum if it seems as though people who are struggling are not going to be punished. So these scriptures, in a gentle, fragile way, loving way invite us to hold up a mirror and say hopefully we aren't like that Hopefully most of the time we aren't like this, but every once in a while a narrative creeps in and these scriptures invite us to challenge that story to expand our hearts and minds and to be curious about what this kingdom looks like that Jesus is describing to us and inviting us into and wonder about what is this God like who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? What is this like? The truth is, Jonah doesn't know the Ninevites. I bet he'd never met one. And the laborers who had gotten there at 9am and worked all day couldn't really fathom what was going on for the ones who only worked for an hour. They don't know them. What they know about them is only based on bias and prejudice and false assumptions. People like them. That type, that sort of person. And that is not how God sees any one of us. God does not see us as a type. God sees us in all of our complexity. And part of God's invitation to receive God's full unmerited love for us is also to release our judgments for one another to not wish punishment on anyone to not judge anyone and to not be offended when God loves everyone just as much as God loves us to not be the kind of person who would want to take popcorn to a slope and watch a city be smote my sister hillary is now raising two boys vote very much like the two of us used to be, equally likely to do something good and sweet and loving and at times equally likely to need a little gentle correction, but both of them willing to go down together, especially her counterpart, the little one, little Charlie. Heaven help you if you try to correct his big brother Graham. He would be willing to tackle a a fully grown adult to have his brother's back. If we can laugh, laugh at Jonah as how we don't want to be and move toward rejoicing that Nineveh is not struck down, that each worker who was picked last is paid a whole day's wage, can we rejoice with them as though we are that ride-or-die sibling? Can their win be our win? Can their joy be our joy? The truth is, we don't know what anyone else is going through. We have no idea. And we don't know what we would do if we were in someone else's shoes. It's not for us to know. But we can trust that God does know. And we can celebrate the way God does do whatever God likes with what is God's own. There is a saying, be kind, for everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. But God knows the battle. And God knows the well-being God desires for each one. The kingdom, the family we are invited into, is smack in the middle of this world—an unfair world, a messy world, where some are strong and fit and treated well, and others are hurting and hungry. Shall we complain that life's not fair? No. And if we are worried about good things happening to undeserving people, we have entirely missed the point. In the middle of this broken, and hurting world, God indeed turns the city over. God upends all our ideas about unfairness and loves each of us extravagantly and equally. Can we be citizens of that kingdom? Can we be ride-or-die siblings in that family? Can we celebrate what God is up to? If we do, the greater prize will be ours, living as a loving sibling In that kingdom is greater than any other gift. Thanks be to God.